One of the benefits of being a grandparent is you get to begrudgingly watch children's movies that you actually really like. So I watched Moana for the first time recently. It's surprisingly deep in its understanding of human structure and the structure of human culture. So I want to share a clip from near the end of the movie that those of you who are familiar with it will know. In this scene, Moana, who is the heroine of the story, has to go put the heart back in the goddess Tafiti. Tafiti has been slumbering, and because of this, Moana's island is in peril. Uh, it does not have the life-sustaining stuff that it needs, plants and fish. To get to Tafiti, Moana has to get past Taka, the horrible, vengeful, huge lava monster. She accomplishes this because she's good at sailing. And she gets to where Tafiti is supposed to be, but Tafiti is not there. At which point, Moana turns towards Taka and has a realization. And so this is that scene. In the scene, Moana puts the heart back in Taka, and Taka turns out to be Tafiti. So Taka, the lava monster, is revealed as the goddess of life, who then turns and starts bringing the world around her to life. And so it's this dramatic moment where Moana turns, clears a path, clears the waters to the monster, approaches it, says its name, touches it, and it turns out to be what she has been looking for. It turns out to be what is necessary for life to go on for her and her people. So in the story that we're going to look at this morning, it's actually two connected stories, and we will encounter an approach that's very similar to this in power and meaning for Jesus and for one who has been villainized, for one who has been monsterized. So it's two connected stories. The first one, David actually took us through a few months ago. Um, it's sort of a version, the New Testament version of uh, home makeover, where we really just encounter the demolition. We don't get to see what happens afterwards. A home is deconstructed. Religion is deconstructed. And following on that is a connected story. We often miss the connection because our Bibles typically do us the disservice of, you know, keeping these stories away from each other, kind of atomizing them into individual little bits, and then putting titles on them that diminish what's actually going on. So the first story sets the stage for the second one, this dramatic encounter that is super meaningful for how Jesus is structuring his take on religion. So I'll take us briefly through the first story, and that'll lead to the second one, which will help us understand, I think, how Jesus wants to build a human community, and it'll also have relevance for us within our own selves. So the first story, this is from the account in the Gospel of Luke, starts like this. And it happened that, on one of those days, Jesus was teaching. And seated there were Pharisees and teachers of the law, coming from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem, and the Lord's power of healing was with him. So a couple of things to note. <laughs> this would be the equivalent of the self-congratulatory biomedical establishment 
at the University of Iowa Carver College of Medicine, the professors there, hearing of someone with no degrees, not even an undergrad degree, much less a nursing degree or a PA degree or a medical degree, in let's just take one of the many small towns in Iowa, El Cater, right? Capernaum at the time of this telling was a town of about 1,000 people. El Cater is a population of 1,200. Capernaum was 95 miles north of Jerusalem. It was in the hill country, rural territory, right? <laughs> and so 95 miles was more meaningful back then because of mode of transportation. And so it would be as if we in the biomedical establishment here heard of an educated person doing some healing things in El Cater. And we would have to have heard of it going on for long enough to overcome our sense that we're the center of healing in Iowa, that we know what we're doing, that we're quite arrogant about it, right? It would take long enough for what's going on up there to overcome our reluctance, our resistance to go. Because that was the religious situation in Israel at this time. Jerusalem is the center of the religious universe for the Judeans. It's the place where the temple is, where education happens, where if you are one of the best and brightest, you go to be trained and to become one of them. So something is going on in this little town of Capernaum that Jesus sits at the center of. He is doing something that's dramatic and meaningful enough to attract the best and the brightest of the pastors, the priests, and the theologians to pack out a room. Right? That's what happens. Capernaum, a town of a thousand, probably not set up for an ongoing religious revival or conference. So someone's home is packed to the gills. And not just with the local Capernaumites or other townspeople from local villages, but with the religious establishment. They have occupied the place, right? So that's one bit of context that's going, up here, going on here. This room packed with the best and the brightest of religion from all the surrounding region because of whatever it is Jesus is doing. So those coming are interested some are probably scrutinizing, maybe skeptical, but many are admiring. They're impressed. They keep coming. This event keeps unfolding. But there's something, too, going on in the background that'll be important as the story plays out. <clears throat> the immediate preceding story to this one <laughs> is Jesus is on the shore of the lake. So Capernaum is a lake town, a little fishing village. And on the shore of the village, right before this one, Jesus has encountered four fishermen who aren't very good. They're not very good at fishing. Jesus encounters them when they've been fishing all night, haven't caught a thing. And he says to himself, I want you to be leaders in my new religious enterprise. Okay, so from the get-go, there's some puzzlingness to this whole thing. These are not religiously trained people. Jesus is not religiously trained. They are known for not being religiously trained. It's something that's said about them repeatedly. It's kind of baffling to the religious institution. And Jesus chooses four of them, Peter, James, John, and Andrew, to be his followers. And they say yes. Now the thing is, Jesus isn't done. We know he's going to end up with 12, right? We don't know how he chose that number. It's a good number, a religious number. It has symbolism. But he is in the mode of scanning. He's on the lookout. Because what's going to happen immediately after the home makeover conflagration is he's going to choose another one. 
But what that means for us is in this home, where the best and the brightest are gathered, from as far away as Jerusalem, Jesus is scanning. Right? It's sort of a background cognitive activity for him. What about you? What about you? What about you? What about you? Maybe you. Maybe you. Maybe you. Okay? Now, I'm going to tell you he's not going to find anybody in the room, but how that happens is meaningful. So the story goes on. The room is packed out. There is a person who has a plight that his friends try to help with. So there's a man who is paralyzed. We don't know anything about how he came into that state of being, if he's been that way for a long time, if it was recently acquired. Four of his friends decide to bring him to Jesus, thinking maybe Jesus can help with this. Okay? So they carry him. We don't know what distance. Short way, long way, who knows? They get there, and they see their trouble. The room is packed with the religionists. So rather than being deterred, going away in mopey departure, oh, shucks, they take a more assertive approach to getting help. They climb up onto the roof of a building, again, probably just a one-story building, and they start digging down through the roof, through clay, straw, stubble, whatever the roofing materials are, not carefully, The debris rains down on the heads of the pastors, priests, and theologians who are watching Jesus. They're gathered close, paying attention, and bah, what's going on? It causes them to scatter, right? So these friends of the man who is paralyzed are literally deconstructing the house. The religious ones are pushed away. The man is dropped in front of Jesus, and his four friends gather there too. So it's quite a pregnant moment. And what's supposed to happen next is obvious. And so Jesus responds. It says, it's interesting, he detects their activity and he he perceives it as faith. Right? You might wonder, and everybody probably did, what's his response going to be? Is he going to be mad, upset? Does he get some debris on himself? What are you doing? But he thinks, that was pretty good. That was kind of impressive. I like that. And he calls it faith, a similar word to trust. And so what he detects is that these friends of the man who's paralyzed trusted that if they did this, if they were this aggressive, if they were this assertive, and as a part of it, if they scattered the religious intelligentsia to make room for themselves, that Jesus would be thumbs up with it. And he is. (laughs) Jesus says to him, Your sins are forgiven. Now, of course, that's the wrong thing to say, right? It's a real question in the moment. If this man carried on a pallet by four friends some distance, exerting a lot of effort, and then having to make this commotion, would have been happy. Because Jesus is ready to be done in the story. Jesus is like, ah, okay, your sins are forgiven. What was I talking about again? Right? It's a real question whether the friends would have been happy, like, oh, that's better. (laughs) But there's grumbling in the room. Jesus detects the tension. The pastors, priests, and theologians are muttering to themselves, and what they say is, this is blasphemous. Who can forgive sins but God alone? You see, Jesus is performing a kind of deconstruction, demolition, 
of religion that's very of a kind with the demolition that's just occurred in the house, okay? So what the religious establishment is upset about is it's portrayed as who can forgive sins but God alone, sort of indignance on behalf of God. That's God's domain to forgive sins. But of course, God was not going to show up in person in the room to pronounce absolution. Sin, sinfulness, badness. The consequences of sin, sinfulness, and badness, and how sin, sinfulness, and badness was addressed, was taken care of, was interwoven into the fabric of the religion. Right? Religion was not about just this, but there wasn't really much of a religion if this wasn't what was part of it either. Right? It's hard to imagine what would have been left, given the kind of deconstruction of religion, the deconstruction of sin, sinfulness, and badness that Jesus is perpetrating. Because for these men of religion in the room, a part of their training would have been categorizing, characterizing, classifying sin, sinfulness, badness, all the different kinds. How bad were they? What did you have to do to undo the consequences of various kinds of sin, sinfulness, and badness? It consisted of rites, rituals, prayers, sacrifices. It happened in the temple, in the big religious building. But here's Jesus, just sort of glibly saying, yeah, you're forgiven, you know, my guess is most people in the room would have first wondered, oh, what did that man do? Does Jesus know? Jesus knows these kinds of things. He probably did something really bad. They had a conception of the consequences of sin that often caused sin sinfulness to manifest as physical defects. When Jesus and his friends encounter a man who has been blind from birth, the first question, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born like this? So my guess is they're wondering, does Jesus know of some deep, dark badness in the paralyzed man? And oh, this is just amazing because he's forgiving it. Right? There's no indication that that's actually what's going on. Jesus just says this thing. Yeah, your sins are forgiven. And I think the people in the room feel the threat of that. Because sin, sinfulness, and badness, it's structured the whole thing, it structured the enterprise. It gave those in the room a sense of identity. They had power, they had authority because of their standing in the religious system and because of the role that they had in administering this whole thing. So they're grumpy and Jesus does this act that says Jesus detecting their disquiet says, just so you know that I have standing to do this, and then he turns to the man, he says, pick it, rise up, pick up your pallet and go home. And the man does. He runs away joyfully. Now the connection between the two isn't explained. It's still kind of a mystery to me, like why power in this domain gives Jesus standing or authority to dispense sin, to dispel it with a word, but like who was gonna argue, you know? Ah, Jesus, I kind of quibble with that. They've just seen this man stand, rise up, go home. And so I think they detect the threat. 
One other way that we can diminish this story is just to make it an amazing thing that happens between Jesus and this man. I remember friends and I, as we're studying it, we would try to think, what did this guy do? If I can learn that, I can reproduce it for myself, right? But I think everybody in the room understood, no, this is more elemental, more structural than that. Jesus has a completely different take on the role of sin, sinfulness, and badness, the lack of consequentiality, the lack of threat, the lack of need for a religious system to address that. So Jesus leaves that space, that lovely space, religious revival, filled with the best and the brightest that religion has to offer. And all he's been met with is grumpiness. Like, no, that's bad, that's blasphemous. <gasps> I can't conceive of such a thing. <laughs> and so as Jesus is asking himself the question, you know, do I find anybody in here who I want to be a leader in my take on religion? The answer is a pretty resounding no. He walks out. And the story says, after this, he went out and saw a tax collector by the name of Levi, sitting at the tax collection house. And he said to him, follow me. And abandoning everything, Levi rose and followed him. So the writer is working really hard to present as clearly, as loudly as possible the stark contrast between the first house and this second, between the first grouping of people and this lonely man, Levi. In the context of this religion, some sin and sinfulness you could address through the system. You could fix it. You could undo the consequences. You could come back into good standing with God. Others, there just was no hope for. Other kinds of sin, sinful bad, sin, sinfulness, badness couldn't be fixed, like being a tax collector. So a tax collector was somebody, a Judean, who was recruited by the Romans to extract the rights due to the oppressors, the money. Tax collector would tax people going in and out of the city for various you know, kinds of taxes. And then the tax collector would add to whatever the Romans wanted, would add some to that for him or herself. So this was Levi. Levi had turned against his peers, his kinsfolk, his culture, his people, to become a tax collector. As such, in this tiny little town, he would have been a known figure, the chief villain, the arch villain. And he is inhabiting this little tax collector booth, this very lonely, very reprehensible, very dark place. And so as the people are watching Jesus leave, the religious convention full of power, like sizzling, oh, that was amazing. He just healed somebody. He spoke amazing words. They watch him march to the tax collection booth where the villain who in this town would have become a monster, all sorts of gossip and rumors and horrible things said about him. They watch Jesus walk up and they're thinking, what's he gonna do to that place? Right? Is he just going to call down fire from heaven and raise it to the ground? Is this the comeuppance? The moment when he says to Levi, ah, 
You betrayer, take your money and leave. But instead, what does he do? He goes up to Levi and he says, would you please follow me? Would you please come with me? Would you please attach yourself to me? Now, the typical Christian take on this is that Jesus is being compassionate. Jesus is including sinners too. Right? This sounds nice. That's how we like to think of ourselves. That's how those of us who sort of inhabit the system and feel good and we're doing the right things and we're a part of the in crowd. When life is going well, Jesus has just come from this amazing moment where he's been on fire and speaking good words. He's feeling good about himself. No insecurities anywhere. He's like, oh, yeah, you can come too. I'll be kind to you. I'll welcome you. My wife and I were with uh, our son and his daughter and our new little grandbaby, Evelyn, in California this past week. And this story is in my head, so I was talking about it with my son, Josh. And he said, oh, that sounds like the white savior. Were those in power who are oppressing others can still feel good about themselves by being kind occasionally, right? But I don't think that's at all what's going on here. When we see this as an act of compassion on Jesus's part, oh, Jesus is including sinners too, I think we're just seeing ourselves. We're just seeing ourselves in Jesus. That's how we want to think of ourselves. That's what Jesus was doing. Isn't that lovely? But Jesus has a really strange take and relationship, specifically with tax collectors, I think as representatives of those who culture has caused to become villains. All right, when Jesus goes to a town of, of, of a crowd that's just fawning over him, cheering, he chooses out of the whole town the arch-villain Zacchaeus, the tax collector, and says, yeah, I'm going to go to your house for dinner. Whenever Jesus tells parables, little stories where he compares a pastor, a priest, a theologian with a tax collector, and these stories are unusually common, given the likely population prevalence of tax collectors, right? There weren't really that many. But Jesus tells a lot of stories about them. I think, again, as representative of those who have been villainized, the tax collector always wins. The tax collector is more godly, has a better heart, a better attitude, a better self-conception, and is always more in favor with God than the religionist. And so when Jesus comes to Levi, I think he's just profoundly suspicious of one who has been made into a villain, one who has been made into a monster. Now, we don't know a backstory to Levi. There might have been one, and if there was, Jesus probably would have known it. Maybe there was something about Levi's upbringing that would have caused him to be singled out in a bad way by his peers, by his friends. We're always looking for somebody to compare ourselves against, to compare ourselves favorably. If we're feeling insecure, we want to find somebody against whom we can focus our collective unrest. Someone who we can ostracize, who we can marginalize, who we can push out. And we'll use just about anything to produce that. So maybe Levi lived the life of a scapegoat. And at some point he said, well, if this is my lot in life, at least I'll make some money from it. You know, we don't know. 
But Jesus is profoundly suspicious of villainizing and of scapegoating. And so he goes to Levi. And here's the thing. There's this phrase that Jesus pulls from the Old Testament to refer to himself. It says, the stone the builders has rejected has become the chief cornerstone, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And it's like this baffling thing because you think, well, the builders probably looked at the stone and thought it wasn't a very good stone. There's a defect in it and uh, the structure doesn't cohere if that's the organizing principle. And Jesus is referring to himself like he's clearly the one the builders have rejected. And so you think, well, what about the stone? And I think it's really simple. (laughs) I think it's that the stone has been rejected that qualifies it to be the organizing principle for this new religion that Jesus is building. I mean, when you think about Levi, if Jesus is building a new cultural enterprise in which ostracism, marginalization, villainizing, and scapegoating have no role or function, in which they are done away with, in which they are not permitted anymore, who better to bring to the center than one who has suffered that? Because of what he has suffered, because of what has come into him, because of having been villainized. Who better to detect the whiff of a hint of it? It is something that you and I as human beings are so prone to. This way of behaving, of identifying something that we use to push somebody out, that we use to disparage them for the sake of our own coherence, for the sake of our own community. And so who better to bring to the center than someone who has suffered that, someone who can detect it, who can, who can say, yeah, I feel it happening, who can say, no, don't do that, who can say, here is an alternative way to structure ourselves, right? Jesus doesn't go to Levi out of compassion. Jesus goes to Levi because he says, I didn't find at all what I am looking for in that room. I need you. I need you as you are because of the life you have lived, because of what society and culture have done to you. It's amazing. It's so staggering and stunning in its intentionality on the part of Jesus and in the meaningfulness for Levi. (laughs) Think about it. Levi, now he says yes, he didn't have to, right? But he perceives and he watches this play out. He sees Jesus over there. He knows there is never going to be a day for the rest of my life in which I would be welcome in that house. And Jesus comes to him and says, would you please come with me? And Levi knows immediately, this isn't just for me. This is for everybody like me. Let's have a party. And the next thing that happens is Levi throws this huge party for all of his friends that Jesus comes to and is the guest of honor at. And it's just stunning and astounding and the pastors, priests, and theologians are just really confused and they don't get it. And Jesus says, I understand why you don't get it, why this is troubling to you. Just keep doing your thing, we'll do ours, it's all good. Because Jesus is doing a new thing. And I think about it with our story. You know, this applies to so many different 
aspects of identity and of being. For us, it's been over the past 10 to 15 years, our turn towards inclusion. And we've gone through all the ways of thinking about what's going on with that, what we were like when we excluded, how queerness was a thing that marked and identified some people for exclusion, the heightened meaning that was given to queerness, and then feeling Jesus nudging us in a different direction. Beyond compassion, oh, we'll be nice, to know we need, first of all, queerness here. We need that to be freely and liberally expressed. We also need to know what it has meant to be ostracized. If we don't want that here, if we want something different to structure our faith community, we need to be able to detect it when it's happening. We need to be able to know what to do differently. How else do we structure a place if that's not it? I think the reason the people in that big room were so aghast is they couldn't even figure it out. Like, what do you do? If that doesn't structure you, what's left? Right? It's so rare that that is not a part of a human community. And I'll say this too in closing. I think this principle applies at multiple levels of human identity. So Jesus is implementing it here on the level of a community, a social structure. I think it applies within ourselves too. I mean, my guess is most of you, we're in the room here, we're, we're shaped by our close cultures, we're shaped by our family, by our ethnicity, by our geography, by our workplace. We learn that there are certain parts of our own selves that are unacceptable, that are a threat, that need to be squelched, suppressed, sequestered, expunged. For me, I grew up Dutch, Midwest, conservative religion, Calvinist, for those of you who, you know, know what that means. So for me, early on, it was just simply inquisitiveness, like asking questions. My one question would be framed really just by one word, really? <laughs> you know, just this kind of niggling frustration or mistrust of unvalidated assertions, right? Really? Well, that was a bad question to ask in my context. Really? You just took things as they were given to you. And if questions weren't answered, it just meant they were bad questions. And so from early on, I learned to suppress that part of myself. And it was not until young adulthood and beyond that I began to realize, oh, actually, that's a really core part of myself, that the goodness I bring to most communities I'm a part of comes from that in some way. And so it was Jesus coming to me and saying, you know that part of yourself that you've sequestered off? I'd like to go there. I would like to meet that part. I would like to be loving to that part. I want that expressed. And I also want the experience of having suppressed that and then that being brought into freedom, I want that to be a part of the mix of you, a part of what you bring. So I have this experience with Levi, just like with um, the story that we talked about a while ago, the woman, the, the, the heading, the woman caught in adultery, the exalted woman. 
where I feel Jesus just doing this dramatic act of liberation, of advancing, of invoicing somebody in a way that's remarkable and in a way that gets to the core of what he is trying to do in our human community and in us as individuals. So as we come to a close, I'm just going to offer a brief moment of reflection. Maybe you can have your Moana moment, your Taka moment, where Jesus can come to you and say, I know you. This is not villainous. This is not monstrous. This is essential. Both to you and I as people in the room and within our own selves. So, find a place of comfort. Jesus, would you come to us? If we've had the experience that Levi has had, would you come, would you come to us, Jesus? And meet us in that place. Tell us what you think, believe, how you value us. And if there are places within each of us, just as individual persons, where you'd like to say, yeah, I want to know that part of you that you've kept hidden. We give you this moment, Jesus, to begin that interaction. May this, Jesus, be a place like the party in Levi's house where we're celebrating your perceptiveness, how you bring us into purpose in creating this lovely, lovely faith community and in liberating our whole selves. Amen.